Hello, and welcome to Captive Audience. I'm your host, Scooting Her Charon, Kelly Hayes. And this show is about forcing my really good friends to go see a theater show with me and then also talk on a podcast about it. Um, today we have our guest, Erin Erfer, and I'm going to let her introduce herself. Okay, hi, my name is Erin. I've known Kelly since the start of college. We met each other our fresh, our first semester of freshman year, and it's been a really fun time since. She's really kind of helped me find my hidden love of theater. We got to see Phantom of the Opera our freshman year together. I have opinions. In, in Broadway. I have opinions. And... <laughs> I personally haven't had much experience with um, musical theater or just theater in general. My first experience with theater was watching The Nutcracker at a local production from my hometown. I was eight. I fell asleep. The next thing, the next show that I saw was some assorted experiences through my high school program, which is very good. Shout out to Emmaus High School for their awesome theater program. I got to see Les Mis, Phantom of the Opera as well as Legally Blonde. I think the Legally Blonde production came out like the first year that that was able to be purchased. Licensed, yeah. Yeah. So I have minimal experience with theater, but I have an appreciation for the arts. And I think being exposed to Kelly's zeal for theater has helped me find more of my own personal interests in it. So... Yay! So, um, we got to see... uh, We went to the first... I believe it was the first night of Theater Exiles Among the Dead. Theater Exile is like a small theater company. They're down in South Philly. They just got a new building. And the show Among the Dead was directed by Deborah Block, and it was written by Hansel Jung. And it is mainly about comfort women and kind of like a full timeline of a bunch of different things happening at once, and then everything kind of comes together in the end without being too spoiler-heavy. I think that, do you want to just give, like, your your write-out recommendation? My recommendation is just to see the show. Mm-hmm. Just go see it. We want to warn that it will be going into a little bit of spoilers as we talk about it. Mm-hmm. So if you want to go see the show and you just want our broad recommendation, I think our broad recommendation mm-hmm. is to see it. But what's kind of your blanket statement on the show, Erin? I thought it's it's heavy. Oh, it's very heavy. I forgot. I took her to a very, I took Erin to a very, um, theater show I haven't been in the world in the theater world very long but I am very used to almost the and not that all Broadway is cotton candy but very broad uh, very Broadway cotton candy sort of shows so when I started seeing Philadelphia theater I just kind of fell into it and there wasn't really a difference and I realized as I bring more and more friends into it um, into these more organic shows shows that are that don't have to fit like the traditional mold And um, this show isn't even a musical. It's actually just a it's just a play that uh, people have been having stronger reactions. And I also totally forgot all of the content warnings in this play. But there are warnings for things like abuse Mm -hmm. um, and uh, sexual violence, which we will also touch on a little bit in this podcast. So if you're adverse to that, just there are a few warnings and Mm -hmm. I'll put them in the timestamps as well if we start talking about them. Um, but also talking about them would get into spoiler territory. So maybe, maybe not. Erin, your recommendation is to, to see it. But you were talking about how yeah. heavy it was. Yeah, I, I definitely recommend seeing it. It's, it's a heavy topic. It deals with World War II, Korean comfort women, byproducts of war. Whether that be physical, emotional, or even sometimes the outcomes of war and what that leads people 
to commit, how it impacts them in their own personal lives. And maybe I'm a bit of a masochist because I like that stuff, but <laughs> I definitely recommend seeing it if you're interested in getting a scope of a viewpoint that isn't really discussed in an artistic way most days anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. The last thing I saw on something like a topic like this was PBS. Uh, and most people can't stand the almost dry way that they present a lot of their stories. So overall, we both recommend that you see the show. And that is our review if you want to stop here. But from that now on, we're going to get a little bit more into details, maybe a little bit more into spoiler territory. So we're going to get into so we're going to get into the show. So what did you what did you like about it without getting too much into the production of it? What did you like? Did you like the fact that there was sort of the split timeline that got explored over time? There are a few questions of familial. If they, here come the spoilers, there was a point where the mom and the daughter switched places for a little bit. Like, what did you think about that? I thought it was a very interesting um, approach to telling this story. And I've always been a big fan of um, separate but converging timelines. So to have that component of it be told was really, I, I think it helps tell that story because it's, it's not just one moment in time that is stagnant. They have ripple effects that lead to future outcomes that affect the person for their own self personally, and it winds up affecting other people around them. And I thought that the narrative was well done. I give major props to the actors, as well as the set, the set crew and everyone else that participated. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I think that it's a very interesting presentation on top of the fact we'll get into later a little bit about how the set was designed. Um, it was a very ambitious show to do for how many set pieces there are in the narrative. If you were to go like scene by scene and you were to say, oh, this is on the bridge, but now they're back in, in the camps in, um, where were they? We were in um, Burma. Uh, Burma, in yeah. Burma. So it would be in Burma one second yeah. and the next second they'd be on a bridge mm-hmm. in Korea was it? Yes. It was um, in Korea, yes. one of the places they wanted to meet. So it was a there were a ton of different locations yeah. that they really solved through the set. The settings, um, if I remember correctly, were in Seoul, South Korea during 1975, if I remember correctly. And then the um during World War II in Burma, which is present-day Myanmar, it's along the southern border of China, and I believe yeah, so it takes place in 1944 in Burma, and then I what was it four or five years later in in, yeah. in Burma again, yeah, and then it took place. There was a 30 year time yeah, jump. Yeah, there. Yeah, there were so many. There were so many factors. There was a. It took place during a Korean. There was a riot happening outside mm-hmm. of a Korean hotel that the character Anna was staying in. Mm-hmm. Yes, Anna was staying in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it would suddenly shift to uh like the jungle setting yeah so i thought that like the the shifts were made very clear Mm -hmm. and i thought that was really impressive and i thought that the actors did a really good job with the amount of the material that they were given uh i feel like on broadway a lot of the the shows have multiple casts that kind of it's almost like a revolving door of cast members but they always have breaks Whereas this show specifically, it was four actors 
always on stage. Mm -hmm. And that is incredibly hard, especially because it was a one-act play, um, which was for how many? It was for 85 or 90? minutes. It was for 90 minutes? Yeah. Um, which is, I couldn't even imagine uh, how, how difficult that is. I'm terrible at lines, so... But is there, um, I, I would like to personally shout out, I mean, I'd shout out the entire cast. There are four of them, and they were all great. I mean, I thought Clarice Hart did a really good job, if only because I have just recently saw her in, um, in Bob, which was at the Izuka Theater with another friend um, who we may or may not get on this podcast to may or may not talk about that show specifically. But she was really funny in that show, and for this show specifically, she had to be. It was it was heartbreaking how um, how sad she was, and that was it was really cool to see her range of emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just so happened to see two shows with her in it in, in two very close periods. I'm sure she did. This show was right after yeah. Yazuka. I mean, the play was advertised as a dark comedy. It, yeah. Yeah, which with given spam and Jesus and mostly yeah, Jesus, mostly Jesus. But yeah. given the context and the weight of the topics, I feel like there was a need for it to have some yeah. lighter moments. Yeah, it was very heavy, and that was done really well by Kathy Simpson, who played Jesus, mm-hmm. and Kathy was so funny and did a really good job to lighten the mood. But there were also really, like, good times of, like, um, there were there was, like, heavy, heavy emotion. Mm-hmm. But I think that she did a really good job. She also doubled as the corporal sometimes. Yeah. For James Kern. For James uh, Kern's character. Who played Luke. Luke yeah. Um, who was also heartbreaking in a, you could tell that he had, he didn't want to be in that war. Mm-hmm. And you could tell how scared he was. And that was very well conveyed in his performance. And I really applaud how open he was with how was scared being scared and vulnerable yeah basically for 90 minutes he was scared and vulnerable for 90 minutes and that's i can't even imagine how difficult that is mm-hmm. um and then i i particularly enjoyed Bijan's performance as anna um i felt that she brought a lot of character and heart to someone who we needed to learn about her dynamic because her and Luke are connected, and we might not have been aware of that immediately in the beginning of the story, but I think she had a good ability to convey this complex, complicated past that they have. Especially in the beginning when she's carrying around her father's ashes, and we don't know, it's kind of just a box. I thought it was a box of trinkets. I didn't think it was a box of ashes. Um, I'm, I'm assuming yeah. it was a box of ashes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... Um, she pours a drink and pervert, uh, drinks with she him in the hotel drinks. room. She pours two, and then later she just drinks all the rest of them from yeah. the bottle. But I thought that that was a. I thought that her portrayal was was really powerful mm-hmm. and was difficult because she was the one rooting us in. It wasn't modern times. The story starts out with her narrative, so she's with kind her of the anchor. Yeah, so she's she's the anchor. So she did a really good job of kind of putting us in. It, it's hard to start at an angry level and a sad level and making people, I mean, it's not hard for people to kind of empathize with a with somebody who's lost somebody, but with somebody being like very angry coming in, even if 
it's because somebody lost someone. It's hard to make other people emphasize empathize with somebody who is who is angry, which is an it was an interesting choice that she came in mad. But um, yeah, so before we get into the production and the set, do you want to talk about anything else about the story? I would say I had I had a very basic knowledge about certain components of World War II. I knew about comfort women. I did not know that um, the majority of comfort women were um, Korean and Chinese women who were then transported across various Japanese military bases. I did not know the number of women that were part of that. And after after leaving the play, I actually, I, I, I felt very emotional after just because it had that what what's there to say about what yeah it really the makes that people go through yeah it really makes you want to like look up and read about it and Which then I you did. get even more angry because Japan w- won't even acknowledge these women um i think there was there's a like a, the documentary on PBS is a documentary about comfort women it's it's but it's mainly about following one particular mm-hmm. woman um through like through her process of trying to be acknowledged by the mm-hmm. Japanese government. Um, and there are only like a handful left of yeah, comfort women. Um, the, play, the playbook on the back here actually has a dedication. It says, Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It says here, We like to dedicate this production to the seven remaining Korean comfort women who are dying one by one without a proper apology. Yeah. So for the women who were um, comfort women... If I know some women object to that term because they were essentially sex slaves, I just want to really um, help point out that this play helps to try to give them a voice. It helps people try to understand what was happening. And it's something that needs to be brought up, especially because as further and further time passes from World War II there's so much history that will be lost because it was from the eyes of people who were actively there and we are losing them just through time. Yeah. And it should be something that needs to be brought up and never forgotten. One of the things that we will do for this podcast is um, I'm going to try and find that PBS documentary or at least what is, what it's called. Um, and I'm going to try and link a bunch of sources. So if anybody is interested in reading about comfort women um, they can read it and they can educate themselves. I highly suggest that you come to the show. Um, I'm trying my very best. In fact, I might even push this podcast forward a little bit more to try and get this podcast out as fast as possible um, so that it can reach so many people or as many, well, I mean, as many people as I can get to. Um, and I, ur- I urge you to see this show. Yeah. It's important in so many different ways and it's uh it's good. It does so much good. And I just think that um, I think that that's the best way to start. Yeah. And then afterward, you can do uh, research yourself. Yeah, because or it's runtime is only until the end of May, right? It's it's runtime is 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 until May 12. No. Well, oh, no, sorry. That's the other show that I went to. Um, it's until May 26th. Yeah. So it's until the end of May. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm trying my best to get this out. You know, might even might even try and get it to the beginning of May. So let's talk about the set. 
Um, I want to talk a little bit about, first, before we get into the set design itself, I want to talk about the layout of the theater. Um, as somebody who is super interested, especially in, in, in layouts of a stage, being from an architecture background uh, and somebody who was interested in interior, and now somebody who's interested in set design, it's really interesting looking at what the base of a stage starts as. Um, and the Exile space is fairly flexible. The, one, the first show I saw of Theater Exiles was, uh, I think it was called An Oak Tree or The Oak Tree. Um, and it was just a linear stage. And that's all it was, except it was um, it was a magic, uh, not a, it was a hypnotism act. So it required um, a little bit of interaction with the audience, even though we didn't actually participate in it. But that was a very much like, the show was in front of us and we were looking at the show from one side. Whereas this show, we were looking at it from two different sides and in the middle was the stage. I'm not professional enough yet to know what that's called, but um, it was a really interesting way of setting the stage. What did you think when you like first walked in and you saw, saw that stage set up? Well, Specifically the yeah. stage set up. Well, it's interesting because the entrance to the stage is offset to one side of the seating arrangement. So there's side one, side two, and in the center is the stage. There's no backs or, there, well, there technically is a back, but it's blocked off, you can't access it. So in order to get to side two, you have to walk around and within the set, and we did, mm -hmm. which I thought was really interesting because hanging from the ceiling were these thing like these Things that I could only describe them as being like jumbled branches and vines, probably to, likely to represent the jungles of Myanmar slash Burma. Mm -hmm. I'm probably going to refer to those things interchangeably. Mm -hmm. That was hanging from the ceiling and some of it was very low lying. Like it was able to be like we could have gone up and just reached for those twigs. I think that was kind of nice, though, because. During, during the performance, you would see them bumping into the stuff, and it's like, okay, they're actually like bumping into trees and branches and things, and I thought that was a nice little touch. But to have the two sides of the stage to be able to have one, one perspective and another, I thought was interesting. I felt like they did a really good job of balancing the work between the two sides. It didn't feel like it was too heavy to one side and too heavy to another because in my limited experience with seeing theater shows sometimes sometimes a side can be dominantly used and for people that in, in like in a typical like i'm just gonna say shell shape where like the seating is all angled into one center stage oh, okay yeah what's the term for that do you know it i just, I just call it a linear theater okay or a, <laughs> it's like there's like proscenium theater mm -hmm. and um, there are a bunch of different shapes that have actual names to yeah. them that I don't know yet. Okay. Um, I'm sure in like two or three podcasts, I'll be able to just like list them off. Yeah. But um, I, I understand what you're talking about. Yeah. Because that was the type of setup that we had when we saw Phantom of the Opera. Mm -hmm. And it's a very known, typical type of viewing, yeah. viewing, viewing ability, not ability viewing experience mm -hmm. so when you get to these smaller productions that are run by local theaters who don't have the ability to have those giant theaters that you can just stack way up high and have people looking down on it you actually wind up getting a better ability of 
seeing the stage, seeing the actors work the stage, and how that will drive the story, which I think was nice, honestly. Yeah, I thought that the, I was, um, I have never seen a show that looks like that. I saw one that was off-Broadway. I didn't see it personally, but I saw a lot of photos from it. Um, and I had always wanted to see a show that was staged like that. Um, so I, it was really, it was really awesome to see this show staged like that. I think one of the really cool things also that this, this staging allows is that you can see the reaction from across the um from from across the show there wasn't like there were there are no walls because you have to see it from both sides so the walls are there are no walls um it was kind of like these two beams that held up one side of it and then the other side was held up by a wall but that was against the back mm -hmm. wall but um uh would you like to explain just a little bit of your background we didn't actually mention we mentioned that i know a little bit of architecture mm -hmm. uh but uh we forgot to to say what your background is. Yeah. So let's talk about that for like yeah. two seconds. Can you just say what you do? And yeah. So I work at an architecture firm. I'm working on getting my architecture license. We met through college because we graduated from, or we graduated with architecture degrees. So I have an architecture degree. <laughs> Bam. <laughs> um, but yeah. So how do you think, um, I mean, you talked a little bit about the, the setup of the space, but mm -hmm. how going in with an architecture degree, what did you notice maybe that maybe if you hadn't had an architecture degree that you would have noticed before? Was there anything that stuck out to you specifically? I, well, the website that showed the summary of the play before I saw it, it had a few photos showing these miniature models of what they were proposing for the stage, which was really cute, by the way. I loved those photos. I love set design models. I can't yes. wait to do set they, design models. They were very, they were, they were informative. I think the the set itself, aside from the very organic hanging bra like branches, was very linear, very structured, and I'm sure there's some symbolism in there that maybe we'll get to, or maybe might be yeah. a representation of something. But I thought it was. It was, I think it helped kind of convey, because the the true set was narrow. It was Yeah, it was tight. really thin. Yeah. It was thin and tight. And maybe that could be like a representation of how Anna's feelings are. They're constricted, they're tight, they're compressed. Mm -hmm. What was What's neat about that is it could directly tie into their limitations for their set. Yeah. Because... The, the room that the whole theater and seating space is in isn't very large. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that when they were given the location for their show, that totally influences their direction that they go with designing the set. And I think it's really impressive when you are given um, locations that maybe are atypical, because then it really does allow that creativity and that intense thought process to really convey things to come through. Yeah. The playbill that we have right in front of us says it's the Philadelphia premiere. I don't know if that means that this is the first time it's ever been done and the premiere is in Philadelphia or the show has been done, but somewhere else. Um, either way, I think that the the staging is, I mean, to me, it's, it's pretty unique. Um, and I think that we that can all be attributed to um, 
Deborah, who is the artistic director and also the, the director of the show, um, and also to Colin, who is the set designer of the show. I know Colin a little bit, and his website, which will be in the link, has uh, a lot of his shows and his his looking at his resume. Um, he's worked with a lot of really good designers, um, and him, himself, is he's a very hard worker. He invited me to a Theater Exile Tech uh, for the other show that I mentioned, not this one. Um, so I know that he works very hard. Um, and he did a really good job with this set because this set is stunning. Uh, I To speak on the uh, hanging branches, um, I think it was really clever because it looks really random, the, the setup of the branches. Um, but there are, there's, there, I don't know if you caught it, but there are clearly two sides to it. There's the left side um, of the, if you divide it up, where one side is the the left side and one side is the right side. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there is either somebody tugging on it or there's something. Yeah. But if one, one side shakes, everything shakes. Mm-hmm. So you have like one side at a time when it wants to be shaked. So you can, there are also interactions with it where people just bump into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the interaction where it actually needs to shake, you can yeah. tell that it's from one central point and everything yeah, bounces up and down. Yeah, that was interesting because there were moments in in the show where there was supposed to be either bombings or gunfire taking place. And when those explosions would be taking place, you would see the canopy shaking, which I thought was, it was a nice touch. Yeah. I, I think that the branches were a really interesting part of the show. Mm -hmm. And another thing that I wanted to, that I want to mention is I really, really enjoyed the fact that it wasn't just side one is the branches and side two is the hotel room. The ho- we mentioned that the hotel room set was very thin because the jungle was actually, as much as they could, because mm-hmm. it's such a small space, was all around yeah. the hotel room. Yeah, it wrapped so, around it. Mm-hmm, so where we sat, where we sat in the front row, because, of course, we sat in the front row, um, because if we can, I'm going to do it. There was about five, maybe even four feet. It was not that much space of space in between. No, no more? Was it more? From like the platform where that for, from the our hotel from room? our from our feet to yeah. the to the yeah. platform that was about four or five feet. I would say maybe more like six or eight. Maybe, but then wow! The, but then okay. the, but then the boundary between where the branches started and where they extended was only like two feet yeah. away from our. Yeah, and that's my the point is is that that space between us and the platform that was the jungle. Like, that was also the jungle. And then there was yeah. also more of a space where it had almost half the stage. Yeah. And then also on the other side, between the other side of the hotel set and the people who were across from us, there was also a little bit of space. Mm-hmm. And that is a deliberate detail yeah. that I really enjoyed because mm-hmm. it really envelops the hotel room, whereas it wasn't just stage one is over here and stage two is over here yeah. and the transition is in the middle the transition was everywhere. And it does. Because they enveloped the and, space and in it. And just the sheer proximity of everything does make you feel more immersed. Because in moments where Luke was was like marching through the jungle with a gun, dear God. I thought he was going to fire it I at know. Us. It's because like, don't I mean, aim that at me. Of. Yeah. It's like, and don't aim that at me. Yeah. It was, that was, that was, he, the, James did a really good job with that, mm-hmm. with that gun. He scared the pants off of everybody in that audience uh me especially because i decided to sit in the front what did you think of 
What did you think of like the lighting and the and the sound? I really enjoyed the lighting. I think it was one of the strongest components of the whole production. Um, major props to Drew Bilio. I hope I'm saying your last name right. It's okay. We literally said that in the last podcast where yeah. we were like, I hope we're saying, I'm really sorry. I just want to apologize. I am so sorry if we pronounce your names wrong. No, but I thought the lighting conveyed itself very well. Um, there were moments where the lighting would focus in on one specific actor and sometimes there were portions of the set where it was so dark you couldn't even make out the set barely but then there would be like the soft glow of a lamp that was still there to insinuate certain scenes that trigger warning was a sexual assault scene and then other moments where um um, number four delivered her soliloquy where oh, it was yeah. all all lights on her. Yeah, she was remembering. Um, she was remember like the last memory that was running through her head as she was underwater. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jesus, Jesus was encouraging her to swim up. She was mm-hmm. remembering a memory. Yeah. So you had like one spotlight on her, and then one spotlight on Luke and Anna. But Anna was portraying her mother yeah. in this scene, which was, I mean, there's the level was there. It was very um, moving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the sound design was really good. Mm-hmm. I mean, I person personally am a wimp. So anything that is shocking or like a gunshot just like sets me off. Like the like I was, you know, there were points in the show where I w- was expecting people to get shot just for like most of the show I went through thinking Luke was going to get shot and he was just going to die there. And then I'd have to remember, oh, Anna had said that he went off to a bunch more wars, and then mm-hmm. in one of those wars, I think it was Vietnam, that yeah. was the one he actually died in and came back to her yeah, he, in a box of ashes. But yeah. you know, but that was um, it's it was still instilled in me, which was I thought was you know because he could still get injured. I mean, number four shoots him at one point. He she shoots him in the leg, and it's just gunshots just put me on edge. But it was it was well designed. Yeah. Um, you know, good for you. I like, I like feeling uncomfortable in theaters. I like being, because getting those kinds of feelings are, uh, immerse me in the show more. I, if I am at the edge of my seat, hoping that someone is not going to get shot or hoping someone's going to, you know, I hope someone doesn't die. That, that really puts me into the show more and it gets me more invested in the characters. So to me, I'm one of those people who believe that any emotion is a good emotion. Mm-hmm. I thought um, Melissa Dunphy, who was the sound designer, did a very good job of balancing softer tones versus louder tones. Like um, the the loudspeaker in the hotel is like very nice and soft and friendly. And it's oh, that like, was really cool. I like that. Like, welcome to welcome to Seoul. If you have like there are student protesters, please stay in your hotel room. Versus the loud, very present gun. Yeah. And it's like... Yeah, there was a lot of sound mixing Mm -hmm. happening, especially uh, with some of the dialogue, again, when she was underwater, and there were, like, four scenes happening at once. There was... um, There there was a point where there were, like, four different things happening, like, every, I believe... Or maybe it was three things, and but every actor was doing something. Yeah. And the, um, the ability to, like, bring in one scene a little bit more, and then you know, take that out, and then all of the, um, I'm sure, 
At some point, ambient, there was ambient sounds. There were and there were ambient sounds and of probably of the jungle. Yeah. That you and I probably didn't even, or at least I probably didn't even realize. But I'm gonna shout her out because they were probably there, and she mm-hmm. did a good job of blending it in, so yeah. I didn't notice. But it it just added to yeah. the environment of the show, mm-hmm. and that is, I you know, I the whole point of this show is I think that that people are not shouted out enough. And I think that they need mm-hmm. to be, I think that yeah. they always need to be uh, highlighted a little bit more than mm-hmm. they are. I also want to say shout out to the costume designer um, who is uh, Ariel Wang. And she did a, a beautiful job with some of the costumes. Uh, I especially liked Luke's costume. His uniform mm-hmm. uh, was very well done. I liked the vibe of Anna's clothes. It was and very 70s. Very 70s, and then slowly transitioning kind of into the clothes of her mother mm-hmm. was a, a fascinating change, and that yes. was that was a really cool transition. Um, I kind of thought it was funny, though, how Jesus had a timeless look. Jesus came, yeah. in, Jesus came in in, like, tie-dyes and bell-bottoms, and then... In flashbacks to forty four, with Luke walking in the wood, like walking in the jungle with Jesus, still same gear. Yeah. The only time Jesus changed uniforms was when Jesus took on the role of the commanding officer. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and that, oh, and the and the bandana and the bandana. Yeah. Nice touch. Yeah. It was it was a really good it was a really good um, put together show. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything else to say about the production or the set or even just about the story? Uh, I do. I, I sent it to you at the start before the show even started. I mentioned the comforter, yeah. and it. I I said to you, "Oh my gosh, I think my grandmother has that comforter just in a different color." And yeah. It's like good spot on catching a nineteen seventy something bed comforter. Yeah, like, nice eye on that. It's really cool when when pieces of and this is. I mean, I don't know if there was a prop master, but we're gonna find the prop master. Uh, I'm not sure if there was anybody on props, um, but I feel like that is, it might have been Colin, because I know Colin is both a scenic designer mm-hmm. and he is, he is he also does props. But that was, uh, it's really interesting how sometimes you can, you can find props yeah. that have your audience identify with a certain prop. Mm-hmm. And it might not be intentional, but the work that goes into looking for items... Yeah that are just from a different time period is I have no idea how they do. I have no idea how that happens. I want to know where he, fa- I want to know. I want to know where they found that comforter. Yeah. Thing, Cause it's like that thing probably got discontinued yeah, it in was, the eighties. Yeah. It was probably from a, a discount older, sale, yard sale. House or something. Yeah. Um, something that's really cool. And I'm, I, you know, my, um, my grandparents live in a nursing home and they have like something that is akin to like a yard sale. But it's within the their auditorium in their mm-hmm. in their retirement home, and they have I think I said nursing home first in their retirement home, and it's really cool. Everything's like twenty five cents, but it's all old old yeah. belongings of these people who live there. So like, if you ever want vintage stuff, look at some old retirement homes because sometimes they do things like that, and that's pretty cool. Um, I know that props. Uh, people who do props often have to go to very unconventional places mm-hmm. to find these props yeah. that they need, often from time periods that there is not much surviving from no. those time periods. Um, I couldn't even imagine designing, you know, a show from way back 
way back when or a show that mm-hmm. takes place from way back when. So, Erin, mm-hmm. is there anything else that you want to talk about? Um, well, I one of the other things I immediately noticed was the amount of red on the set. And there's so many layers to the color red. Um, red's also a very common color in a lot of Asian cultures to have. It represents like nobility, royalty, um, honor, things like that. And But then there's also just the very visceral symbolism of red being blood. And I thought that was also a good cue made and judgment call because red has this dual layer of cultural identity and loss of independence, autonomy, loss of innocence through the acts that took place and that helped shape the narrative of this play, which I think were a nice touch. Yeah, I definitely think that there was there was so much symbolism in the set. The the colors being one of them, the lighting designer, um, Drew representing the forest with the green and the and the blue sort of meshed with with water with sea colors, which was really interesting. It was almost like there were always two lighting areas. It was either the red where you're inside and it's uh, highlighting the the hotel room or you're outside and it's blue, green, representing the harsh environment, whether it be the bridge situation where there was a, there was a bomb on the bridge or and that insinuating that the jungle and the the bomb on the bridge were two events that had to do with war and being outside and it's kind of they were both grungy colors where you know it wasn't like a bright green or a bright blue it was like a grunge blue and the red was very violent I would say the red was, to me was violent. Yeah. So it was. Oh, there was never like a calm, like moment of mm-hmm. of these colors are settling down and they're light. They're a little bit lighter in this scene. It was always very harsh. Yeah. And I think that that did well to the tone yeah, of the show. Even when individual spotlights were on actors, mm-hmm. it was a very bright light. Like it was yeah. like, look at them. Yeah. Listen to them. Yeah. It was very. No, no holds bars mm, presentation yeah. in in the in the lighting, which was really which was especially nice because you feel like because it was such a small space, like you don't need you know this stark lighting. It's like we can see them; they're three feet in front of us. But I think it helped narratively mm, yes. so much. I don't think that I would have wanted it to be lighter. I think I would have wanted it to be like bam. The you know. softness wouldn't do justice. Yeah, to it wouldn't the, do justice to the story no. or to the set. No. Is there anything else that you want to talk about? I think that's it. I think that's it. You think that's it? Yeah. Do you have any social medias you want to plug? Eh, nah. nah. Nah? We'll put them in if uh, if Aaron finds any later while I'm editing. Mm-hmm. And I, all of my social medias will forever be linked to this podcast, so... Um, find me wherever you find me. I know we have a Twitter. I don't have an Instagram because I ran out of Instagrams. You can't have more than five. And I know because I have five. Thank you for coming to this podcast. Uh, I hope to continue these week, not weekly, maybe every other week. 
Um, this podcast might come out a little bit earlier than it normally does just because um, I want this podcast out so that I can let people know to go see this show. Um, again, it's at Theater Exile. It's called Among the Dead. It's playing from May 2nd to May 26th. I want to thank our guest for coming. Would you like to say goodbye? Yes, well, thank you, Kelly, for having me on here. This has been a pleasure. I've always enjoyed talking about deep subjects with you. I love talking about deep theater subjects with my friends. <laughs> I like forcing my friends yeah. to talk to me about theater. <laughs> um, but thank you. And if you have anything else to say. Yeah. Um, that's it. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, dear audience, thank you for joining us. And we'll see you in one week, two week, three week. Redfish, bluefish. Thanks for coming. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.